So uh, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, this morning. You know, on, on the day of a disaster, people always ask the same three unanswerable questions. Uh, who's, who's at fault for this? Who's to blame? Why did, why did God allow this to happen? And what do these people do to deserve um, such terrible suffering? And so people always ask these questions in the aftermath of, of, any, of any tragedy. And if you remember back to 9-11 when those airplanes uh, flew into the, the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center in New York City, uh, killing 3,000 people, uh, people were asking those very same questions. Who's to blame? Who could have prevented this? Why did God allow this to happen? And, and what did these people do to deserve this? And then in 2004, right after Christmas, the day after Christmas, there was a tsunami that slammed into the coast of Indonesia and it killed 100,000 people. And it displaced millions more from their homes. And again, the same question was asked, how could this, you know, how could this have been prevented? You know, and, and, and why did God allow this to happen? And what did these people do to deserve such, you know, deadly suffering in their life? And then, obviously, I, I was just watching the news last night, and they were reporting on the war in Ukraine, and these questions came up right on the news. All of a sudden, God really enters in to the public sphere when, when disaster and tragedy unfolds right in front of us. Who's to blame for this? Well, I think we have a pretty good idea for that, right? But but, but we're, the question was really, why isn't God doing anything to stop this? And what did the Ukrainian people do to deserve this? Because their country is absolutely getting leveled. And so the disasters and the atrocities change, but the questions remain the same, don't they? The same old questions, time and time again. And, and sometimes when we see death and destruction, we understand that death and destruction are caused by human beings. When you think about war, you think about religious persecution, you think about violence in the streets, that's all human, you know, human driven right there. And then you think of other disasters, you know, that have more of a natural cause, like tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. But it doesn't really matter what the cause is because the question filters right back down to the same, same two. What did these people do to deserve this? And why didn't God do something to stop it? And so this morning, what I want to do is just take a few minutes and just kind of touch on this uh, just a little bit this morning. We are starting a new series uh, today. And uh, the series is called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And we're going to be spending the next several weeks in the Gospels looking at Jesus-specific teaching on a, on a lot of different topics. And it's, it's really kind of interesting when you think about it because there's a lot of confusion as it relates to the teaching of Jesus today. There are a lot of people that speak authoritatively about the teaching of Jesus. And they'll say things like, well, you know, Jesus... Uh, you know, he taught about love and tolerance and, and, and kindness to your fellow man. And, and that was basically it. And that should be your clue that they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, that they haven't really read Jesus' teaching. If that's how they're going to summarize it uh, all up. They've not really even looked at it or considered it seriously. But other people have looked at his teaching and then they, they just kind of walk away in absolute confusion. They're like, this is... This is so difficult to even understand. Like, how do we even process this? 
And, uh, and then there's a third group that we see, people that have read it, people that uh, do understand it, and then they, they really come to see the unbelievable challenge that Jesus presents to us in his teaching. And so what they do is the challenge is so great, they just dismiss it altogether because they really want nothing to do with it. And so what I want us to do uh, as we lead up to Easter Sunday is really dig into some of these sayings of Jesus, these teachings of Jesus for us so that we can have clarity uh, in our own lives, so that we can really see the challenge. And I think in the midst of the clarity and the challenge that Jesus lays in front of us, it really points to the same place, the, the grace of the gospel. It points to the cross that we can see that even in the midst of the challenge, he gives us grace to obey. So what I want us to do today is I want to look at one saying of Jesus we find in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus basically lays it on the line and he says this, repent or you all likewise will perish. And what's really interesting about that statement, and he makes it twice as we're going to see in just a minute, is he makes that statement in the very context of talking about disasters. He, he makes that statement in the context of talking about atrocities and natural disasters and he challenges his crowd, if you will, to repent right then on the spot. So let's read it for ourselves. Uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 9 and I'm going to ask uh, if you're willing and able would you please stand together for the reading of God's word today. So Luke records this. He says there were there were some present at the at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three years. Now I've come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So this is a fascinating passage. What in the world does he, does he mean by this? What is going on in this passage? Well, let me, let me kind of set it up this way. Jesus is with a crowd of people. And, uh, you know, they were doing back then what we do today. They were just shooting around, shooting the breeze, talking about uh, current events and they and the subject you know came upon just some disasters that occurred um, just recently just, these were on the headline you know news of uh, the Jerusalem Post you know and people knew all about it and uh, and so there was an atrocity that was committed by Pilate and then there was a disaster that happened inside the city of Jerusalem and you see the atrocity in verse one uh, it was an event that uh, everybody knew about and uh, and Evidently, and from what we know about this, we don't know a lot about this event specifically from 
from Jewish history, but what we do know about it, what we can kind of deduce is that Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, the Romans were occupying uh, the country of Israel at that time, uh, had some political enemies who were a clear and present danger uh, in some way to to Pilate's authority and, and to Pilate's rule. And so they happened to be very religious Israelites. They were very devoted uh, to, their, to their Jewish faith. And so Pilate had his henchmen, uh, gave the orders to his henchmen to hunt these people down and to kill them. So that's kind of interesting because uh, that's how they did politics back in the day. Like if you had power and you had a political enemy, you didn't just, you know, tolerate them you just killed them right so it gives you a little bit of appreciation for politics in our day as broken and backward as it is at least we're not doing that on a regular basis but that's exactly what was happening in the day in the life of Jesus and what was particularly grisly about this event that occurred with Pilate was these um, henchmen of Pilate made the decision that the best time to kill these guys was when they, they believed they were the most vulnerable while they were worshiping, while they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Now, we don't know the reasoning behind that, but that was their decision. And, and so maybe they felt like they could limit, you know, the collateral damage. Uh, maybe they were sending a message. You know, who, who knows what the thinking was, but that's exactly what was happening. So Pilate's enemies were worshiping at the temple. They were offering sacrifices. And these guys come in in the middle of that and kill them. And you could probably imagine what that looked like, uh, but you can also really see uh, when that occurred. It occurred as, you know, they were offering up sacrifices to God. So that's why it says their blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. It gives you a, really, a real clue there. So, so one commentator said about Pilate, they, uh, you know, it was described this way, uh, many massacres marked his administration. So this was a regular occurrence under Roman rule, under Pilate's leadership. And you could see, understandably, why the Jewish people absolutely hated Roman occupation because their people were dying. It was happening all the time. Now, there was another tragedy that happened. And you see this one in verse four, where Jesus is really talking about inside the city of Jerusalem, within the walls of the city of Jerusalem, there's the pool of Siloam. And uh, apparently near that pool of Siloam was a tower of some kind, probably a, a security tower. And uh, for some reason, some way, that tower fell and killed uh, 18, 18 people instantly. And so these were the two things that they were talking about and asking Jesus about. And they were really wanting to know, why did this happen? And uh, who's to blame for this? And they really wanted to know, were these people that died were they worse sinners than everybody else? I mean, I think, I think we've, we've all kind of asked that um, at one time. So what Jesus does in this passage, what I'm going to try to do today, is really just talk about how we are not to view suffering and tragedy in the world. How not to view it. We are certainly seeing it on our TV screens right now. And then I think what he does is he talks about how we should view suffering and tragedy in the world. And then, and then I want to kind of finish up by talking about what our response should be to suffering and tragedy and brokenness in the world. So let's look at this, how not to view suffering. You know, there are two common ways that I think people today view suffering and tragedy. And I would say that the first way 
you know, it's just kind of the karma approach. It's the karma way, if you will. And karma is the belief that, you know, what goes around comes around. Karma is the belief that you get what you deserve. Uh, karma is the belief that you kind of reap what you sow. And so if you're a bad person, bad things are going to happen to you. If you're a good person, good things will happen to you. It's karma, basically. And you see it. You see that's the fundamental driving assumption in the question that's being asked. This is, this is the, kind of the worldview of the people then. And it's interesting because it's the worldview of so many of us uh, even today. But notice, notice verse 1. He says this, Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them with a question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So you see that phrase, worse sinners? See, that's the implication. They were, they were, they were killed because of something they did. And God was angry and God kind of took them out and used Pilate uh, to do it with and so and so then you see it even in verse 4 he asked another question about the the tower of Siloam falling were they worse offenders than everybody else in the city of Jerusalem that they were killed and so this really the question just reminds us of a belief in karma that if you're a good person then good things are going to happen to you but if you're a bad person then then the tower is going to fall on you that's the underlying assumption. And they're asking Jesus about this. And it's really the belief that if you obey God, God will bless you. If you obey God, God will answer all your prayers and give you a comfortable, easy life. But if, if your life's not going well and he's not answering your prayers, it's because you're doing something wrong. It's because you have unconfessed sin in your life. It's because you're messing up and you're getting the punishment that is justly due you. That's kind, of, that's kind of the thought. Now, church, we all have a tendency to think this way. I mean, this is kind of just instinctive for all of us. I mean, when you get a flat tire in your car, when you have a financial downturn, you lose your job, when you have a health, a health scare, what is the first thought in your mind when that happens? I must have done something wrong. God must be punishing me. It's just kind of an instinctive, reflexive uh, reaction that we think about. And it's, I think, part of our fallen sinful nature that that's immediately what we jump to. And it's interesting because the actor Rob Lowe describes it this way. He says this, and I quote, I, I, I try to hold on to the things I believe to be good and true. Good things happen to good people. Karma is real. There's a larger and better plan for us, all, all if we stay positive, keep pushing, and get out of our own way. Now, what he's saying is, is that righteousness and goodness will happen to your life if you'll just stay positive, you know, if you'll just keep pushing and get out of your own way, whatever that means, right? That's what he's talking about. In other words, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, so be good for goodness sake, right? So that's, that's kind of the thought there. And this is exactly what they were asking Jesus. I mean, the Galileans, they had to be bad people for this to happen to them. Right, Jesus? I mean, the people that, you know, had the tower land on it, I mean, they had it coming to them. They had to be worse than everybody else in the city of Jerusalem. And I think it just, I think it reveals something in us that's a part of our human nature. It's a part of our sinful human nature. And that is, when something good happens in my life, I want to take credit for it. 
That's because I did it. And that's instinctive for me and it's instinctive for you. Like if our children turn out to great, well, it's because of my great parenting, right? You know, if I'm climbing the ladder of success in my job, it's because I'm a really hard worker. I'm very gifted. I'm really good at what I do. If I have great relationships and great friendships, it must mean that there's something attractive about me. Like there's something good about me. And there's something in all of that thinking that really wants to take credit for the goodness in our life. And we don't even consider the fact that it might just be grace. It might just be the unmerited favor of God blessing you. Like that thought is the farthest from our minds. We don't even consider that possibility. And so, and so that's kind of the way it goes. And so now on the flip side, when you know, things go bad, okay, that's on me too. You know, bad things happen to bad people. And so really the fundamental driver in this is the people are at fault. If you want to ask who's to blame for this tragedy, who's to blame for this atrocity, there, it has to be on the heads of the people. Now you see this, Uh, you see examples of this belief in scripture. If you've read through the book of Job, you will know that Job suffered atrocity and disaster in his life. I mean, his life was absolutely decimated and he was left standing and he has these friends around him. And uh, really part of the purpose of the book of Job is to call our attention to how we care for someone who's hurting because these guys did not do a good job of that. I mean, with friends like Job had, you don't need any enemies, because in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his devastation, they were blaming him. They were saying, you're at fault. This is on you, Job. You're the one sinning against God to cause him to do this to do this to you. And I'm not saying that Job was perfect, but what we do see in, in Job is God rebukes Job's friends because of their, you know, their putrid counsel that he was, he was giving, that they were giving Job. And so the disciples were walking with Jesus one day. I've, I've shared, you know, this story with you before. And they saw a man who'd been blind from birth. And, and the disciples just asked a, a theological question. You've asked it, I've asked it. You know, what did this man do? Uh, was, what, what did this man do to deserve this? What, did he sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? And there you go. There's that that's, that's the karma approach. You get what you deserve. And, uh, and that, that's how a lot of us view it, even today, even as Christians. That's kind of how we view it. Now, the other approach is, when you kind of think about suffering and tragedy, the other approach is a lot more straightforward than, than the karma approach. The, the, this approach, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this for, for obvious reasons, but... Um, the, the, the other approach is that life stinks and God is to blame approach. That, that's, the, that's the other one. And, uh, and, the, and the thought process behind this, and you've met, you've met people like this, right? Uh, most people are good and they deserve a good life. And the fact is life just stinks and God's to blame. You know, they deserve to have good things happen to them. And, uh, you know, if God was fair, if God was a God of justice, you know, he's a God of power, he has the power to prevent this, so why didn't he prevent it? He must not be good. And uh, this blame God approach is very, very popular. A lot of people won't even step inside the door of a church because they've already bought this, this approach. They've already bought it hook, line, and sinker. Now, this is Job's wife. 
because Job had this you know, calamity occur in his life and his wife basically said this, why don't, you just, why don't you just curse God and die? Because the implication is life stinks and God is to blame. Now, that's how not to view suffering and tragedy right there. That's, that's what Jesus is really trying to help these folks understand. And I think it's the point um, of what we're seeing in Luke chapter 13, or I should say one of the points here. Now, what's the right way to view suffering and tragedy um, in the world today? I think the right way is to view it through the lens of the gospel. And um, we're going to do that today. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to come at it kind of in a different way. Let me, let's go back to verse 2 and let me show you uh, the questions that were being asked again so that we can kind of uh, get our bearings around this. So, they, so really the question is this. Did the Galileans do something to cause the atrocity? And what does Jesus say emphatically? No. No. They didn't do anything to deserve this. Do you think that they were worst offenders? You know, the people that had the tower fall on them. And what does Jesus say? No. They were not worst offenders. When the disciples were with Jesus and they saw the man blind from birth and they asked him who sinned, the man or his parents that caused him to be blind, what did Jesus say? Neither. Neither. So you got no, no, and neither right there. Uh, Three times the question was asked. But what he does say is this. He says this. No, they're, they're not paying for their sins. There's not retribution for sin. But by the way, you need to repent. Or you all likewise will perish. That's what he's saying. He's saying they're not paying for their sins. God's not demanding retribution and just, you know, knocking them dead. That's not what's happening. But by the way, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn away from your sin. And it's what what I think he's really communicating here is this. The truth is we all deserve a tower to fall on us. That's all of us. We all deserve to have that tower come down on our head. And when you think about it, you know, if God gave us what we deserve and he hasn't and he doesn't, but if he did, our blood would be mingled with the sacrifices. That tower would land squarely on us. Because the truth is this, that's what we deserve. That is what we deserve. The problem, though, is we don't see that. The problem is we don't believe that. And let me just kind of frame it this way. There are two groups of us in this room right now. And I would say most of us fall into the first group. I'd say 85% of us, maybe 90, fall in in group one. And uh, group one is... Really, all of us that believe we're pretty good people. We're not bad people. We're good people. And we believe in the grace of God. We believe in the love of God. Of course, you know, we, you know, we come to church. But, but how we view ourselves fundamentally, we're good people. I mean, we're Americans for crying out loud. Of course we're good people, right? We're hardworking Hoosiers. Of course we're good people. 
And that's how we view ourselves. And we, we definitely believe in the love of God and the grace of God, um, but, but he loves us because we're good people. That's what we believe, and that's group one. And then there's group two. And I would, I would say group two is this. Group two is that smaller group of us that have realized our sinfulness. We have seen the darkness in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions, and we believe there's no possible way God could love me. Some of you are there. You're there secretly, but you're there. You look at what you've done in the past and you're thinking to yourself, it's just there's no way God could love me because of what I did. Whenever that was, whatever that was, there's no way God could love me. And, uh, and it really just kind of puts us in this, this kind of quandary, you know what I mean? Because we, we're wrestling with a tension here that we can't reconcile. You know, and, and, and the tension is this, if I'm really loved, then I can't be that bad. But if I'm bad, then I can't be loved. And we just pick one. And a lot of us live in one or the other. And what Jesus does in this passage is he does something amazing. He does something that's so against the grain. That basically he's taking two truths and he holds them in tension with each other. And the truths are this. We are sinners and we are loved by God. That's it. We are sinners and at the same time loved by God. He brings these two, two truths together and uh, holds them in perfect tension with each other he knows how sinful we are he knows the truth about us and he loves us anyway it's just mind-blowing that's the that's this is you guys this is the heart of the gospel this is the very core of it right here now you know you've heard me talk about the gospel being like a diamond you know what i mean and Diamonds are so multifaceted and it, they're just so beautiful and sparkly and, you know, and it's like as a pastor, you know, I have the privilege of holding this big diamond of the gospel up every week and show it to you and I can just turn it a little bit and you can see a different facet of it and then I turn it another way and you can understand another facet of it and it's just an amazing kind of thing when you really begin to comprehend the beauty and the and the power of the gospel but let me explain another facet that we don't talk enough about in church and it's this that God never deals with people according to their sins he never deals with people according to their sins. It is not even remotely possible that God is paying you back for your sins. It's not even, it's not even in, it's, it's, it's not even possible. It is completely impossible that he's paying you back for your sins. And you know why I know that? Because, th because of this. Think about all the times in your life that you've lied and you never suffered the consequences of it. Think about all the times in your life where you had a murderous thought about your neighbor. You had a lustful thought about your neighbor. You had an impure thought about your neighbor and you suffered no consequences of that. Think about, think about all the dumb decisions you've made throughout your life. 
And you didn't suffer all the consequences to all of those decisions. Think about the friends that you betrayed. Did you even lose those friendships? Did you suffer consequences from that? Think about how many times you turned your back on God and he never turned his back on you. God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. And that is the beauty of the gospel. It is, it is the beauty of who we are. We have not received a fraction of what we really deserve. And, and, and the truth is this, that God graciously, day in and day out, is busy not giving us what we deserve. Day in and day out, graciously not giving us what we deserve. You are here today, I am here today, living and breathing only because of the grace and the mercy of God. And that's the gospel. And I think what Jesus is really talking about here is if we could just recognize that. If we could just recognize how selfish we are, how sinful we are, how broken we are, we would come to the conclusion that God does not owe us a comfortable life. He doesn't owe us wealth and prosperity and fame. He just doesn't. He doesn't owe us any of that. What he owes us is death and judgment. And so the real scandal of grace is this, that on one hand, you know, God owes us nothing, but on the other hand, God is passionate about wanting to bless us and, and love us and give us good thing after good thing. You know, on one hand, you know, he doesn't owe us our next breath. But on the other hand, he gives us our next breath and a thousand other gifts just today. And then tomorrow, our next breaths and a thousand more gifts tomorrow. This is life. This is life in the kingdom. And this is what Jesus is trying to help these folks really to see. That we, that we just have a hard time believing that we are sinners. And we have a hard time believing that we are loved by God. And we try to strike the middle balance. And uh, there's just something in us that just struggles to believe it uh, completely and perfectly. I, there's an ESPN documentary and it's titled The Four Falls of Buffalo. And uh, the documentary tells the story of the Buffalo Bills in the early 90s. They went to four straight Super Bowls, 90, 91, 92, and 93, and they lost all four of them back to back. And, um, and so uh, the documentary kind of highlights them. And in the very first Super Bowl with the Bills against the Giants, uh, the Bills had a chance with eight seconds left to play to win the Super Bowl and become world champions. And so they sent in their field goal kicker. His name is Scott Norwood. And uh, all he had to do was hit a chip shot 47-yard goal. Season's done. They're world champions there in the history books. Can you guess? Can you remember what happened? Well, by the look of the picture I'm showing you, I think you know what happened. He missed the 47-yard field goal. The Giants went on to win, and he walked off the field in guilt and shame. In the documentary, they ask him how he felt, and he said, you know, even after 20 years had passed, this is how he described his feelings. Sorrow, I guess, and disappointment in letting down the teammates that are there on the field of battle with you. I get choked up thinking about it, putting myself back in that situation. 
Well, the rest of the story and the documentary kind of highlights this is when the Bills arrived back home, they had a big pep rally, uh, the fans did, for the players. There were 30,000 screaming fans waiting for Buffalo, the, the team, to get back in. And so they were having this huge rally, and um, Scott Norwood's hiding in the very back, you know, the players, and doesn't want to be seen. And all of a sudden, the crowd, all 30,000 people start chanting, we want Scott, we want Scott. And finally, he, you know, he relented and, um, and walked forward to the microphone. And this is, this, is, uh, this is how he describes the scene. He says, we got back to town and I didn't know what to expect. What I really wanted is just to remain behind the scenes. But there was a chant that anticipated. And, and, and I was not expecting to be called to the front like that. And I had to speak off the top of my mind and real quick. And I think in a sense, that's when the truest feelings arise. And so what the documentary shows is Scott Norwood holding a microphone and he's saying to the crowd, I've never felt more loved than I do right now. Now, you just think about that, church. I know it's kind of a sappy kind of thing, but, but he was expecting condemnation and deservedly so. But that's not what he got. He got unconditional love from a fan base. And what that is, it's a picture. It's a glimpse of the gospel. Where does that come from? It comes every day from how God relates to us, that we are sinners, yet we are loved, we are loved by God. And see, here's the thing, church. If, if you can't really face your sinfulness, it just means you've not grasped the love and the grace of God because it's the love and the grace of God that enables us to come face to face and, and take responsibility for our sinfulness because we do it from a place, a standing of love in our relationship with God that he, that he really cares about us and uh, that he really loves us and it gives us the power to own it and, and to deal with it. And so, and so that's... That's what I think is really happening here. And so when you think about how to view suffering and tragedy in the world, don't, don't blame the victims. Don't blame the victims under the tower. Don't, don't blame the Ukrainians laying, laying on the ground in the city streets. And don't, don't blame the God over the tower who's sovereign over U Ukraine. What we need to do is when we see tragedy and disaster like that, is realize our own sinfulness and what we deserve. Because when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you know, did, did God create disease in the world? No. Did God create death in the garden? No. Did God create all of this destruction and war and poverty? No. Those things are created by men and women. Are they the results of a world that is turned away from God. And we need to be reminded of our own sinfulness and brokenness in the face of that tragedy. Now, what should our response be when we see it? Uh, let me go a little bit quicker, a little bit deeper into this. Uh, not only just kind of seeing our sin, but what our response should be is really repentance. Because what Jesus says two times in this passage is no, but you need to repent or you likewise will perish. He says it in verse three, and he says it in verse five. And I think, what he, I think what he wants us to see is he wants us to realize our own depravity, right? That our depravity, 
our sinfulness is so self-evident. It is so non-controversial it, that Jesus, he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't just assert our depravity. He assumes it. That's what he does. And he says, you too need to repent. Doesn't mess around. You see, some sins are bigger than other sins. Some sins are more obvious than other sins. Some sins have greater consequences than other sins. But even the tiniest little sin, the smallest little sin, is a declaration of war against God. The smallest sin is moral insanity. Because what the smallest sin does is it separates us from God. And I think we just don't realize how serious sin is. And so serious enough that Jesus would say to all of these folks, you need to repent. You need to see your own sinfulness. You need to turn, you need to turn away from it. The other thing about the tower, you know, falling on us, um, I mean, even if, even if we never experience a tragedy firsthand, even if the tower never falls on us, even if we're never victims of an atrocity, church, think about this, we're still going to die. We're, the death rate is still 100%. And uh, we need to be prepared for that. Jesus says, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And so um, the death rate is the same. We need to repent. And what Jesus is talking about when he says that you all will die, you all will perish, he's talking about eternal judgment. He's not talking about you're going to just die off the face of the earth. That, that's a given. We're all going to die. But what he's talking about is we're going we're gonna to face, unless we repent, eternal judgment. And so, and so we see that this is a warning from Jesus. And um, Interestingly enough, I was, I was looking at Luke chapter 12, and it's just fascinating. This is the preceding chapter, because you always try to look at the context. And so Jesus gives a number of warnings just in the previous chapter. He, he gives the warning that one day the Son of Man will return at an hour when we least expect it. And then he goes on to say that the Son of Man will reward his faithful servants and he will punish unfaithful servants. That's warning number two. And then he gives a third warning where he talks about, I mean, if you have a debt with God, you need to get it right before you die. That's warning number three. And then early in Luke chapter 13, what does he say? Repent or you all likewise will perish. So what Jesus is doing is he's warning us about the reality of sin and the destructiveness of sin, and he's calling us to repent. Now let me just close with this. What does it mean to repent? It just means three things. First and foremost, to repent means to confess your sin, to just simply acknowledge that you have sinned, and you agree with God that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. That's what it means. I think secondly, to repent means to be contrite over our sin, to be sorry for what we've done. And, and to really own it and to take responsibility and to see, to feel sadness and remorse, not because we got caught, not because we have to deal with the consequences, because it offended and hurts a holy God. So we confess it. We feel contrition. And then third, to repent means to change 
our ways to turn away from sin. So confession, contrition, and change. And really, repentance is a sign that you've received the grace of God. It's a sign that you've received the mercy of God in your life, that there's, there's real faith, there's real change. Now, the question is, well, when should we repent? And what Jesus is saying in this passage is right now. And it's urgent. Right now. Or you all likewise will perish, he says. You need to repent. And it's fascinating to me because think about who he's talking to. He's talking to people that didn't have the tower fall on them. He's talking to people who are having a pretty good day. Because they didn't get slaughtered by Pilate. The tower didn't fall on them. Things are going pretty well for them. And what he's saying to them is, don't get too comfortable. But you need to examine your own life and repent right now. Because you don't know when the day you, that you're going to die will be. Now, let me say this. If you're a Christian, where does repentance kind of fit into the game as a Christian? That's a great question. You know, gospel repentance is really not a one-time thing. Gospel repentance is daily. Gospel repentance is many times, several times a day, maybe 10 times a day, maybe 50 times a day. That's what it means to walk with God as a Christian. I think repentance is as natural and normal as breathing. It's interesting because Martin Luther he, he nailed his 95 thesis on the, on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, one, of his, one of his first theses says, all of life is repentance. And I think as Christians, we need to understand that it's not just kind of this one and done thing. Well, I prayed the prayer. No, repentance is daily. Repentance is every single day as the Spirit convicts you you confess, you feel that contrition, and you ask God to help you grow and change. That's really what it is. You know, the other thing about repentance is that it's sweet. You know, when, when preachers talk about repentance, I, I think repentance gets a bad rap for some reason. You go downtown Indianapolis and there's a street preacher, you hear them preaching to the crowds or whatever, and it, they sound kind of harsh and they sound kind of negative and but really repentance is sweet because repentance sweetens us. It sweetens me. It sweetens you. And, uh, and so we have this negative connotation, but it, there shouldn't be a negative connotation to it because repentance actually puts me in my right mind and it produces great fruit, which is why, which is why Luke put the, the parable of the, of the fig tree right after this story. Because you remember I read that. Remember the parable of the fig tree? And it was about the fig tree that wasn't producing figs and, the, and the, you know, the vine dresser said, let's give it another year to produce fruit. Now think about that. Who's the fig tree? You are, I am. And what's the fig? It's the fruit. And what is fruit? It's sweet. And what Jesus is saying is, when we repent, we experience the fruit of the Spirit that's sweet in our life. And, um, and we begin to see the change of no longer living at war with God 
here's really kind of the last question. Why in the world should I repent? Well, I've really already kind of talked about this, but let me, let me just answer it quickly this way. Jesus loved you so much that he let the tower fall on him instead of you. And that's why you should repent. He allowed his blood to be mingled with sacrifices so that your blood wouldn't have to be. And it just shows you his, his love for you, his love for me, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this morning, I just want to give you an invitation. When a, when a little tower falls on you, don't first jump to, well, God's punishing me. Just remember the big tower that landed on Jesus. And just remember that Jesus was punished on your behalf and on, my, on mine. So that's the first invitation. The second invitation is this. If you're not a Christian, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to give your life to Jesus. And you're like, well, how do I do that? Repent of your sin and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an invitation to do that. Would you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the amazing grace of God that admittedly it's just hard for us to even grasp the fact that we are great sinners, but you are a great and loving God. We are great sinners, but you are a great Savior. Lord, we, we can't even fathom how much we sin in a single day. We're so blind to it. But God, I pray that you would open our eyes to your love. That you would open our eyes to the fact that your mercies are new every morning. Unique mercies. Thousands of new mercies every single day. Help our eyes to see God, I pray that for those that feel like they've, they're so bad, there's no way they could be loved. God, I pray that you would grant them saving faith today. For those of us who have a hard time just grasping our sin, I pray for the grace that we could grasp your love fully. And so God, we just give ourselves to you. Thank you. You don't owe us anything. Not one thing, but we owe you our lives. I just want to lead you in a prayer right now. If you're not a Christian and you would like to become a Christian, I just want to lead you in a prayer just with every eye closed and every head bowed. I want to lead you in a prayer. There's, there's nothing special about this prayer. It's just calling out to God. That's all it is. So this is where you are today you want to commit your life to Christ, just repeat after me, just silently to yourself, dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. And I want to change by your grace and mercy. Would you work that miracle in me? Would you forgive me and grant me new life today? Would you help me to see and embrace the love of God and help me to turn away from 
from sin's insanity. And give me the gift of eternal life. And God, I pray for every person who has prayed that prayer right now. God, would you just bring in a harvest of sweet fruit today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen and amen.